Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Take a guess. In, in the seasons or the years of marriage, what do you think is the highest divorce rate? Did you guess first year? First year is the right answer. Too many maybe shattered expectations. There's a lot of lifestyle changes that need to take place. Um, we've seen a few times where, uh, you know, after the vows are said, uh, it turns out there's a Mr. Hyde and you've been dating Dr. Jekyll or Mrs. Dr. Jekyll and then you meet the other half and, you, and you're a little shattered. And so anyway, the first year, no doubt, highest uh, divorce rate in marriages in America. Here's, take a guess on this one. This is the one that's a little bit, um, I guess, perplexing. What is the second highest divorce rate? in marriages in America. Empty nest. Empty nest. When the children leave, there's a grieving that happens and then you get blessed by being around 50 years old and the midlife stuff starts to shake you. And uh, 20 or 30 years of marriage, people just walk away from it. And, and, and why is that? You know, because time is a grist mill it, and it just sifts us. And if, if we're not disciplined, then um, the things that are lost are, are communication and, and intimacy and caring and affection. And it's a very strange thing because we have, to be, we have to be very disciplined that our marriage doesn't become parenting. Because if our marriage becomes parenting, after a certain amount of years, maybe the one last one's almost ready to leave or has left the house and you turn across the dining room table and you say, well, who are you? And what's, what, uh, what is challenging for a lot of people that experience divorce at this, at this period in their lives is many of them never saw it coming. They don't have experiences of, you know, a long-term serious uh, conflict. They don't, they don't have uh, something that uh, continues to happen over and over again. There was no talk of divorce. The problem is there's a lack of discipline because marriage requires an enormous amount of discipline. And today we're going to learn, you know, about how to be disciplined. Marriage is like this fire that you have to just keep tending, you know, if you want it to stay. Let you just keep adding logs to that. We're going to learn today about how to, how to maintain. We're looking at a marriage that's it's, uh, survived over time and it's th thriving now, even in the, in the latter years. And we're going to learn how to be very practical today. We're going to look, look at some ways that we can just go home. We'll have homework assignment, okay? <laughs> but here's the key. What we're going to be looking for in these two poems together is we're going to see that romance dies um, because they're, well, let's put it positively, okay. Romance stays alive when there is a change of focus on a person from their physical to the emotional or psychological and to spiritual. In other words, uh, there has to be a concerted effort and understanding and joy in a person's values that says, I'm going to look, you know, I'm not going to gaze at the wrinkles around a person's eyes, but I'm going to focus into those eyes and see and enjoy that soul that's behind them. And, and intimacy evolves. That's like, maybe that's what uh, the theme is. Intimacy evolves. It goes from uh, physical in the early years to then it, it goes from physical to emotional and then emotional connection to one another. 
and enjoyment of one another. And hopefully our souls are evolving as well as we're becoming more and more like Christ. And then it goes from psychological commitment to a spiritual commitment. And we enjoy intimacy that is mystical and supernatural on occasion. And you know that there's something more here. And that's what, that's what we see here in this Song of Solomon story. This, this is called a Song of Songs. And I believe most people believe that at this time we're in chapter 7, that this is kind of this is a photo album. We're going through it, and this is the later years of their lives. And they've been married for quite some time, and it, and they, uh, but they still have so much going in their marriage. So when we look at this, we're going to we'll look at two poems. I want us to look, you know, we'll look at first at what he does, and then second at what she does. But, but I, want you to, I want you to see there's, there's a difference in perspective on both of them now and the change that takes place in their lives. Okay, let's look first at what he does. Okay, that's the first poem, and that's uh, chapter 7. And, you know, it, it starts, by the way, it just starts with this irrevocable commitment that he has for her. We've talked about that throughout our series together. This is, week, it's like our, this is our sixth time together. But that's the commitment is still there. And he has this unquenchable uh, attraction to her spectacular beauty. But she's not as beautiful as she used to be. But he's still enamored with it because he's become soulishly attracted to her and spiritually attracted to her. Her beauty, what I want you to see is I want you to hear and listen for that the beauty that he's going to be calling out is character-based. Okay, he'll be attaching... Um, her physicality to her character, her soul. Now, there's no doubt, this, is the, this section of Scripture is the most erotic in this book and in the entire Bible. We won't be studying those sections because it's Sunday morning. <laughs> but I just thought you'd want to know that. Uh, that. He's an old guy, but he's still deeply and passionately in love with her. But I want you to see how he's drawn to her character. Verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, How beautiful your sandaled feet are, O prince's daughter. O prince's daughter. She's not a prince. Some translations say noble daughter. She's not a prince's daughter. Her, her father is, out of the picture, probably dead. And she is the daughter of a farmer. She, she, she has a farmer's tan. She's a, a, a commoner. She's not, but see, he sees her as a woman of nobility a princess, a daughter of a king. And verse four, he says, and your neck is like ivory, like ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Hezbollah at the gate of Beth Robin. So his neck, he, she, he looks at his neck and says, look at this ivory tower. The idea there is it's, it's strong. Ivory is very uh, valuable, but it's white. And so that almost always in the Bible and symbolic and poetic language means purity. He's looking at that. And then he looks at her eyes and in and, and verse 5, and he says uh, that it reminds him of the pool of Hezbon. And the pool of Hezbon, did I read that? No, it was some, verse 4. Or, yeah, your eyes are the pools of Hezbon. And pools of Hezbon uh, is an oasis. Just, if you look at the Dead Sea, just to the east of it over here is this oasis. It's a sacred oasis. It's a Levitical city uh, where the priests would live. And there was this place where you could go and be refreshed. And so what he says is, if you want to look into the, your eyes, right, the windows to your soul, it is a, it is a place of, of peace and tranquility for me. It, um, when, I, when I stare into your eyes, I, I feel like I'm experiencing an oasis from the rest of my life. There's a calmness that happens when I see you. 
So that's what he sees in verse 4. And then verse 5, he says, Your head is like a crown of Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. Some translations say a, a purple thread. That's, that's a, a literal translation. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, the king is held captive by your tresses. Your crown, your head, your crown is, is like Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, no doubt, undoubtedly. It's the most luscious part of the Middle East right here where Israel is. And it is unquestionable the most beautiful part of that area. And he says, that's, that when I look at you, your face, that's what I see. You're crowned, your, head, your hair is crowned like a queen. It says that purple, it's the most valuable because it's the most expensive dye. And, and he says, so it's like a, a purple ribbon. And again, our translation says a royal tapestry. I look at you like a queen. And the hair represents her whole being quite often, in, in, again, in poetic literature. And he says, I'm captivated by that. I'm spellbound. I stare into you and enjoy you. And, and um, it's, again, it's character-based. He's attracted to her being, who, she, who she's become. And so in summary, in verse 6, it says, How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. And the word um, delights there just means charm and, and in the context of like a spell. She, her character has influenced his vision <laughs> So that he sees her so beautiful that she's captivated. He's captivated. He's spellbound. He's, she has magic upon him. Now, initially, if you, if you, again, let me just show you the contrast. Initially, if you look at his, his life with her, when he starts off, he says, he, remember, he says, your, your body is like um, uh, a, a vineyard or a garden. And now he's saying it's more like an oasis. And that's a little different. A garden, you could go, it's pleasant, it comes and goes. This oasis is here all the time. It's a place of safety where I can go and get rest and refreshment and nourishment. Originally, he was attracted to her beauty and the potential of her life with him. Now he's talking about not what she uh, could do, but what she's already done for him. The love that she's already, he's already experienced from her. He's originally intrigued, right, and, and looking in anticipation. And now he's experienced this woman for a number of years and says, it is better than my expectations. Because, because of, his, um, of his emphasis upon who she is as a human soul. I heard one man say, this is a, a wonderful summary of this poem is a, a man said about his wife. He said, my home is where, wherever my wife happens to be. My home is wherever my wife happens to be. You see, there's soul rest in him because of her. And that's how he sees her. Here's what she does. Poem number two. Here's what she does. Okay. She's going to invite him to join her out, you know, right in, in the country. But listen, before she does, she, see, she sees that she has a spell on him. Like he said, delight in him. And so she says this, and this is powerful in an expression of how much she's changed over the years together. So here's a somewhat familiar phrase, right? It's the third time we've heard chapter 7, verse 10, kind of. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. So we've seen three times, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, right? He, I, I belong to him. So she's, again, she's saying, I'm equally committed to you. I'm my beloved. But instead of saying, and my beloved is mine, she says, and his desire is for me. She's looking into his eyes and says, oh, yeah, I know I have a spell on you. 
And listen, this, this is no mild word. The reason I underline desire here, this word is used three times in the entire Bible. Some of you that are familiar in Bible reading know this word is used in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, your desire will be for your husband, and it's not a good desire. And then chapter 4, where God warns Cain, he says, Cain, you know, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to devour you. You must fight this urge. So this desire, this is the only time it's used positively in the Bible, and the idea is it is this um, all-encompassing urge, <laughs> right, to pounce, right, a strong, overpowering urge and desire. And she sees what she has done to him and is proud of it. The point is, look how self-confident she has become. She is so secure in her relationship is she can stare at him as he has um, given her encouragement about who she's become. He sa she says, oh, uh, I am my beloved's. I commit to you. You own me. And your desire, this, you know, this pouncing urge is for me. You have built me up. My shoulders are back now, and I am confident about the way I make you feel. feel. And so she's purposefully excited about what she's done to him. Now, here's, here's the thing. Um, she's saying to him, look, I can, I'm the person for you. And I can do, I'm the only person that can do this to you. And there's no, there's no reason to go anywhere else because your desire, that urge, right, is for me. This is what we were talking about on Sunday night. If you came Sunday night, I was trying to convince you ladies that when you, when you, you, ha you can have this sort of thing on your husband that he might enjoy life, and you would enjoy getting to that place. But, but, but more specifically, in our, in our time together, let me, let me um, try to convince you that this is quite possibly, no, quite probably, the biographical theme of the book of the Song of Solomon. Okay? There's a biographical theme here about what's you know, what, what life are we supposed to be looking at, and what are we supposed to be looking for, and it's this. Her revolutionary change in her perception of herself and the fact that she can say this and the rest of this poem is going to convince us, right? How do we know that? Because, because the poem is, is so different compared to the other poems that she, that she has read. She's going, this is the first time that she's going to like expressly with, with no you know, figurative vocabulary call her husband out to come and experience sexual intimacy with her. It won't be in the third person. It won't be metaphorical. And the other thing, she's going to grab him and pull him. She's going to say, look, we're going. And, 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 so, and the idea here is when scholars write about this transformation, they look how powerful she is, look how secure she is, look who she's become because of this persistent praise and accolades that she's received from her husband. She's come to believe the things that she heard early on from her husband about her worth and her value, and now it's taken root and it's expressing itself in fruit in the relationship. She's taking the initiative and, and, and saying, this is what, look at verse 11. She says, come, my beloved, let us go into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. So let's go back out in the country, you know, home court advantage where I grew up. And get out of this city. The city's kind of a negative thing in, in kind of the values of this, of this book. And let's go out to the country where we can enjoy ourselves. And I'll take it from there. Verse 12, she says, she says, we will rise up early and go to the vineyards. Let's just see whether the vines, this is spring theme again, lovemaking. Let's just see whether the vine has budded 
and its blossoms have opened and, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed and let's see if uh, there I will give you my love. Let's just see if, you still, if we still have love for one another. You know, let's just see. I mean, it's, a, it's an obvious yes. Right? So verse 13, she's playing with him. She says, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance. And over our doors are all choices of fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. I have saved up some old and new. What does that mean? We're going to experience some old good times together, and there'll be some new times that I've been waiting and thinking about and kind of strategizing for you. I'm looking forward to taking you out into the country where we can get away from the city noise and enjoy each other. How forward and, and strong she has become because of him. That's, in some respects, many believe is the theme of this book. It's great when a woman gets to that point because of encouragement. Um, I, I remember uh, it was our 16th anniversary. I think it was about our 16th anniversary, and it fell on a Sunday. And so Melinda came downstairs. I, was, uh, I used to teach in the Cornerstone building, and she said, hey, let's go to lunch for our anniversary. Uh, sure, what? yeah, let's go to lunch. So we go to lunch, and we're sitting at the table, and then she has this duffel bag, and she puts it on the table. And I said, hey, that's neat. What's, what is that? What do you? She, goes, she said, you're not going home for 24 hours. I said, well, where, where am I going? She, she said, I'm, I'm, I'm taking you to a place in Austin, this little bed and breakfast in Austin, but you're not going home. And uh, I said, well, my car's at the church. No, your car's already been driven home. You're, you're not, you were leaving from here to there. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, I'm going to do what I'm told here. I said, can I have the check, please? The guy says, you haven't ordered yet. So it's like, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> I mean, she had that look in her eyes, right? I am my beloved and my beloved's desires for me. Yes. Okay. And I'm still talking about it, clearly. <laughs> that's, that's what happens to, the, that's what happened to this woman. And then in verse 8, it's, she is, she's so free now. In chapter 8, verse 1, she says this. Oh, that you were like a, uh, if you were like a brother to me. Well, why? Who, who was nursed at my mother's breast, why would she hope for that? Because if I, if I found you outdoors, then I would kiss you and no one would despise me. <laughs> so, you know, public displays of affection, of affection are, were inappropriate in the Middle East. Well, they still are to this day um, in, in parts of the Middle East. And she said, boy, you know what? I, when we get out to the country, I'm going to plant a big, passionate, wet kiss on you. If one of the, I don't know, town leaders come up, we're just going to say, uh, you're my brother. <laughs> We're just a really close family uh, from Arkansas, you know. We're, we're just really close. That's it. Here's, I want to stop before we move on. We sent, I, I wanted to save a lot of time for application, but I want you to see what's happened to this woman. That's the theme, of, that's the biographical theme of Song of Solomon. Many believe that she starts off this shy girl that's, uh, kind of a little bit ashamed of her background and her socioeconomic place and her uh, upbringing, right? Don't look at me. I have a tan. I've got this burn, sunburn from working the fields. I'm just a city. I'm your city person. I'm a country person. And then now look at her, right? No. And here's the thing. Here's how they, here's, here's how they express their love with each other, right? They're not adversarial. They're not going back and forth at each other just trying to dig. They, they're, they're giving to each other, Okay. And they're expressing gratitude. This is God's plan for a relationship. This is God's plan for marriage. 
And when you live God's plan for a marriage and are less self-centered and self-sinking, trying to see what you can get, and you become a person that God's going to use primarily to change a human soul, then this is what it looks like in, in the years ahead. This is the harvest that comes. Okay? Praise and honor and value and respect. And here's the other thing. Besides the things they didn't do, they weren't complaining and, and hacking away at each other, and they were giving to each other, and they were praising and encouraging. They were constantly growing. Both of these people continued to grow in their relationships with each other and in their relationship with God. Friends, I know this is, in, our, in our culture, in many ways, our, we're a cult of, of, of externals. But if you work out really hard and you stay on your diet, I want to tell you, you'll be lucky if you look a little less worse than the year before. That's your goal, is to look less worse than the year before. Okay, <laughs> there's, there's so much fatalism. I'm, all, I'm into getting in shape and that sort of thing. I'm just telling you, it's, it's all downhill. It's just how steep the hill is going to be. But wait, 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 let's just stop and say, wait, if we were less consumed with that or, and, and more focusing on the transformation that can happen in our souls about not being so fear-driven or, or compulsively you know, in control or vain-based, right? Or in need or such a needy, would it, what would happen then, you see? And that's what's happened to these two people. They've, they, they, they let the power of God's spirit into their individual lives and then collectively they, they let it into their marriage. And because of that, this is the fruit they have, right? In the emptiness phase, if you will. This is the power of what God has for us. So, so let's see how we can apply this, okay? How do you stay motivated to do this? Especially since, like, again, it's this gristmill of time that's grinding away. How do you stay motivated? How do, you apply, how do you stay motivated? Let me tell you about motivation. Forget motivation. Motivation's stupid. Motivation is fickle. It comes and goes. It carries the light loads, but it can never carry the heavy weight for a long period of time. It's discipline, friends. It is discipline. <laughs> you have to be disciplined if you want a great relationship for a long period of time. Okay? Motivation is easy. Okay, it's, it's generally speaking, it's an emotion and, and it, it, it's helpful for little things in the short term. But when you really need something, it always runs and hides. Discipline wins wars. Discipline wins big battles. Discipline wins long term need, right, to, to get things done. Forget motivation. Do not be emotionally centered in what, what I guess, drives you to have a better marriage. So here's, okay, there's my speech on discipline. Just do this thing. You just choose to do these things. I'm going to, I'm going to, again, we're super application. We have so much time now. Okay. A cup, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you what not to do. Okay. And then I'm going to tell you some things to do. All right. Here's some things not in the context of discipline. Okay. Train yourself to be a husband and a wife. Okay. Don't. Biggest problem. Discipline. Do not compare. Do not compare. Do not look around. Do not look at that couple or that man or that woman. It, it, bring, it, it just breeds so much contempt. It, it, it's so difficult. And, you know, emotionally and physically, we emotionally compare with other people. And we, I've been in so many counseling situations where someone will say, well, you know, I wish my husband had 
um, this person's creativity and, and that person's work ethic and that person's laid back nature and that person's poetic. It's like, they're a Frankenstein, right? It's Dr. Frankenstein, and they're putting this, this thing together that no one person could possibly have together. You want ambition? You can have ambition, but it's going to be, it's going to be sprinkled with drive, and they're not going to be laid back. You want laid back? Yeah, they have a hard time holding a job, don't they? Well, how about that? Yeah, right? You know? So they build a Frankenstein, and just like the book, Frankenstein kills the maker. It destroys the marriage because no one can live up to that. And we, and we, we do that Again, emotionally, and we and we and in our culture, we watch, we read uh, romantic, you know, novels. We watch you know silly movies that are a little bit overly romantic, and we and it, you know, they're fairy tales, and they're fun for entertainment. But when we when we look at them expectantly, you see, not for entertainment's sake, but expectantly, then we turn to our mate and say, "Why not you?" That's not fair. So we can't compare. We can't compare emotionally with other people or relationally with other people. And we can't compare physically. I don't think there's a shorter route. I mean, it's a straight line and it's a short road between pornography and the destruction of a marriage. that That is so unfair to be looking at someone else in that way and expecting certain things and then turning to your mate saying, okay, let's go. It's, it's cruel. It's cruel to expect that, but it's also cruel to, to even entertain pictures, entertain pictures of people <laughs> that are perpetually 19 years old, right, with airbrushing, male or female, you know. It, they're, not, they're not real. They don't even look that good. Uh, J.P. Moreland uh, wrote on, on lust and passion on, on a, like an appendix of one of his books, and he just said, you know, it's interesting that this is, before pictures and newsprint, we didn't even see pretty people. There might be one pretty person in the whole village. And she, I mean, look at Braveheart, right? There's that one pretty girl in Braveheart, right, in the whole village. But she's wearing burlap, Right? <laughs> I mean, that was it. That was, that was it. That was the pretty girl. And Mel Gibson got her and everybody else. You know, but there wasn't the standard. See, we have these, these standards that are... If you compare, if you're looking at your person and then you're comparing out here, and again, nothing gets there faster. Nothing can get there faster than pornography. But here's, here's, the, here's the positive side of that, okay? That if you focus your attention... On, on your mate defining beauty, then I'm, I can show you scientifically, you know, neuroplasticity, your brain starts believing that is the gold standard of what beauty is. You, you believe that, and they become that. And you can honestly, with a hand on the Bible, a lie detector set up to you, she is, he is the most beautiful person in the world. So not only is looking around a bad thing for you, but staying focused and identifying your mate as the person that gives you all desires, it feeds it back. Melinda, <laughs> this last month came to me and said, you know, I've never said this to you, but I wanted to thank you for all the work you do to, your, you know, to, to protect yourself from the sun. You know, I've got, some, I got the short straw genetically from my mom with skin and stuff, and it didn't go well for her. 
And so I, I, I put on sunscreen almost every day. And she said, I've never thanked you for that. I've never thanked you for, you know, you're always wearing a shirt outside and that sort of thing. And, I, and she left and I went, she just, she just thanked me for being pale. <laughs> and that has never happened, ever. And I thought, look, in her, in her mind, okay, in her mind, short, pale, and old is, is the thing. And she looks at some of you guys and goes, oh, tall, dark, and young. Oh, I'm, you have to carry a burden. You do. You can't be short, pale, and old. Meh. Never. You, you see the power of this? So don't compare. Here's the things you do do, okay? I'm going to give you, here, here's what I wanted to do today. I wanted to make this so, I wanted to make it simple. Simple kinetically, but it's, again, emotionally, you're going to have to do some things. I want you to discipline yourself to do things. First thing I want you to discipline yourself to do is touch in words. Simple, look what I say. Simple touch in words. Simple touch in words. I know if you have little kids, this is going to be hard, but just hold each other's hands. Just, just touch each other. There's so much power in touch. Gals, just put your hand in his arm. Make him feel like, you know, he's a a varsity letterman all over or ever again, whatever. (laughs) Say, say things with your mouth, you know, with words, say them out loud. If they're in your head, say, wow, that's amazing. That looks beautiful. Or you're, you're, you're such an encouragement to me. I know some of you are not very affectionate and not very encouraging, but there's something you can do. Change. (laughs) Just, just change. I got to tell you, there's nobody in heaven saying, oh, that's a great attribute to have. Affectionless, affectionless and no encouragement. It's not the way you were designed. There's a, there's a flaw in this thing. Change. Become affectionate. Just simple. <laughs> Just hold a hand, grab an arm, say things, be encouraging. Okay? Simple. Okay, but, uh, simple, special. Okay? okay. Simple, special. Write notes on a post-it note. Just start off on a post-it note. You can get a whole stack of them for like a buck twelve. Okay? Simple things. Like a, a special meal. Just say, hey, this is your favorite lasagna. Bam! It counts. These sorts of things count. One of the things I stole from my mom growing up is every once in a while she'd just get all dressed up because for nothing. You know, I found out later it was for something. But <laughs> it was dad was coming home. And we still do that around the house. I'll, you know, Melinda's coming home from work, and I'll, I'll get all dressed up, and the kids go, you guys going out somewhere? Nope. Mom's coming home. I want to look good for her. Every, most of the time when she sees me, she has to look at me wearing shorts. And so that's her burden. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I just, again, it's just these simple things. Dress up, leave notes. You know, hey, can I get you something at the store? Make a person feel valuable. Okay, then, and, then, and then two times per year. Two times per year, you could, if you could work this into your budget, start planning out, well, you will save money in the long run. Two times per year, go somewhere special. You don't have to go far. You don't have to leave the city. Two times per year, do one overnight. You know, maybe kidnap somebody, your, your husband or wife. Okay, here's the homework. Here's what I want you to just try this simple stuff out. Homework, okay? Four out of seven times this week, Okay, four out of seven times a week, okay? It's more than half. I want you to go for a walk. Just go for a walk. Just, take, just go for a walk around your block, hold hands and talk, and, and just see what happens. And do this to the end of July and see if you can make it a lifestyle issue. We started this, I don't know how many years ago, and we still, 
sun gets down, it's getting to the place where it's kind of cold. Cool. Under, I don't know, 89. And we just walk around the block holding hands the whole time, just pretending you're newlyweds all over again. Just try that, okay? Here, those are the discipline things you need to do. Very seriously consider those, okay? The don'ts and the do's. Here's, here's another thing I want you to do, too. Take a test. You know, there's a, it's kind of a weird deal. You can pull your car into a, car, a parts place or even a, a shop, and they can plug this gizmo into this socket in your car and do diagnostic work and tell you what's, what's right or wrong with your fuel, fuel system, your electrical system, right? All kinds of things that's going on with your car. There's such a thing in your marital relationship where actually your, your male-female relationships, and we're going to avail this to you guys. It's called the Couples Checkup uh, Relational Assessment. Okay? It's by a group called Prepare and Rich. No doubt, if not the best, one of the, the best groups in the world. 30-plus years of research and diagnostic work. And what we're going to do is this, this, I think it costs like $35. We're going to make it available to Grace for two weeks for $25, okay? The price of a, of a pretty cheap date. Both of you take this test. It's 100% confidential, and it's going to do diagnostic work on role relationships, communication, conflict resolution, intimacy, finances, okay? $25, are you kidding me? $25 for the next two weeks, you could go to the website, click on it, and then it's great for if you're dating or if you're engaged or if you're married, okay? 100% confidential, super, okay? Would you consider doing that? Sticking a little thing into your relationship and let some diagnostic work get done? Simple things. Here's another thing I want you to know about. And I want, oh, this is good. We've been working on this for at least a year, maybe 18 to 24 months, okay? Next, this coming fall, we're going to do a series called Five Words, and it's going to be a major outreach event for us, okay? We'll be teaching about the, sim- the five simple keys to having a great marriage, and what we want you to do is a couple things. We want you to plan to attend, okay, whether you're, whether you're, again, whether you're single, dating someone, engaged, or if you're married, but what we want you to do is we want you to consider praying for five in your bulletin there, pray for five, we want you to consider praying for five couples to come. And, and guys, we're, we're going to do this in a way that you could bring your Jewish friends or your friends from other churches, and it's not going to be heavy-handed, right, uh, with altar calls and that sort of thing. We want first and foremost people to have amazing marriages so that God is glorified in those things. And we'll find out, I'll show you two, week, two or three weeks before it starts, that they're going to need Jesus to make these five words work for them, Okay. So it'll be kind of a backdoor way of, of bringing up the power of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. But I, here's, I want you to be praying for five couples to come, for you to invite five couples to come. And here's, here's one for the varsity players. Okay? We're going to want like 80% of the people at Grace to be in a discussion group about these five words. And you, some of you, I want you to seriously consider starting your own discussion group. A six-week study, you bring all of your friends, you pray for your five couples and say, hey, why don't we all do this? We're kind of, we're on a, living on the same block together. Our kids play together. Why don't we just do these? It's a six-week study. The first week is to get to know you. That starts on September 6th. The first week is kind of this umbrella talk, and it's so that you can start. We've been working on the discussion questions for over six months. You host a small group, a discussion group, where you go through the five words and open your lives up to other people and see what happens. That's what we're... Friends, this is the biggest push for outside outreach and the, and the depth of potential for your individual marriages that we've had in, this history, in the history of this church. 
This is no small thing that we've been asking and, and looking forward to. But here's the thing. We desperately need you to be praying about this. Okay? We're, this is not a church where we're, you know, our job is to see how busy we can get everybody. Okay? We respect your time and your decisions in what you choose to do ministry-wise. But friends, we're calling it all in on this one. Okay? A six-week study starting September 6th. We're asking you to be praying for five couples, maybe to join you in your living room to see what the power of God's Spirit can do when we just <laughs> kind of obey the owner's manual. Would you consider doing that? It is not good for man to be alone. It is, through, it is through marriage, the way God planned marriage, that we would be changed and transformed in the image of his son. There's so much power to this. Let's be a kind of church that brings that power to our friends, okay? It's been great talking with you guys. Next week, we're going to finish the series up, and we're going to look at them and how they finish, and they finish well together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we lift up our time to you. We lift up our church to you, Lord Jesus. We lift up our church to you, that we would be a church that brings um, the potential of what could have happened in the Garden of Eden and still in its residual state can be experienced in this life. And we can experience it quite often through marriage. It is the worst of times and it is the best of times. Lord, we ask that you would give us um, insight and understanding how we could be a great mate, how we could see our own souls change as we become selfless and trusting in you to rid us of the sin that so easily entangles us. And that we would enjoy the, uh, the Spirit's use of us to transform the life that we've sworn our commitment to. Lord Jesus, help us be a church of courage and of significance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.